becomes like a fleeting memory. Whatever you grab just turns to dust. Like eye contact with a stranger straight around the corner. It's a dream that you get to make real. Have we started? <laughs> I'm recording. All right. Hey, we're welcome to the, the shores. shores. <laughs> we're doing it. Cheers uh, to the shores. But it felt good, though. We're back on our bullet ride this week. Yeah. The last, what, month? We haven't been able to get it, and we talked about it a couple of times on the on the pod mm-hmm. and friend and listener heard it saw a bottle and got it for us so thank you for that thank you it's super sweet yeah we were wanting feedback and this is the greatest feedback this is the best feedback that you get <laughs> i think it means keep going is it okay yeah good good i guess it's, it's not l- liquid not, nourishment liquid encouragement it's not as good as a super spiritualist or something like that <laughs> conspiritualist oh conspiritualist that review we got yeah. oh by the way if you like the podcast go on apple and give it a rating um just try to get those stars <laughs> up <laughs> we have so few ratings that uh we had two one star ratings and the reviews are pretty funny you should read them yeah they're great yeah uh you know but rate it honestly if you want to give us one star give us one star just make your review funny <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> it was funny i was like oh that's great i love that uh yeah so boring white dudes conspiritualists mm-hmm. that's us yep that's true <laughs> all right so what do we got today we're about to find out about to find out yeah well I'll, I'll start with a question okay that that occurred to me the other night which is that The question is, if you could see into the future, would you want to? Hmm. Yeah, that's a difficult one. Yeah. Yeah. Why is it difficult? Well, I'll make it difficult. That's why. (laughs) (laughs) I knew you could do a lot with that. (laughs) I also always love it when I do this. She asks a really simple question, and uh, I can never answer some questions. Like, there's a game you play, would you rather this or that? And then I end up complicating things, and then everybody stops playing the game. (laughs) You're just supposed to pick one and it's supposed to be funny. And you, I know. It drives me crazy. I hate, I hate either or statements. You yeah. Know? It's like you either could be a millionaire or you could be a, a homeless person in the streets of Bangladesh. And you're like, I can imagine good and bad things about both of those. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like what kind of rich person am I? Am I an asshole? Yeah. Or? <laughs> you get the choose. Just pick one. <laughs> well, I was thinking about it the other night because I, I feel, uh, I feel like there's so many things on the horizon uh, that I'm excited about Mm. and I'm looking forward to. And that's such a good place to be in, Mm -hmm. to feel excited and hopeful for the future. And then you imagine, well, what if you, you know, you don't know what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. So what is it, what is it that you're really excited and hopeful about and why would you feel that way? And, Mm. and then what would it be like if you knew the outcome of the things you were excited about? Well, then you really wouldn't be, I don't think, as excited. Because part of what you're excited about is the unknown. Yeah. It's like if you imagine sort of like big life things, uh, financial investments, um, job, relationships, the best case scenario in all of those things are better than you can imagine. Mm-hmm. 
And that's part of what makes it so good. You know, you get married mm-hmm. or you, let's say you fall in love. That person isn't sort of the person that you could have written down the characteristics of. Mm. They're more than that. They're better than that. More than you could have imagined. And that's why you're so in love with them. You're so excited about that. Mm-hmm. But if you knew all of that ahead of the time, if it wasn't somewhat something of a surprise, it's like, I think you would lose something of the core experience of being human. It's like, you wouldn't even be human anymore Yeah. without that, the tension of anticipation and the tension of hope. So I guess they're like, it makes me start thinking about like, even like character stuff. If you did know the future, it's like, how much of the future do you know? It's like, uh, cause like, I guess there's something in that question that almost suggests omnipotence, you know, all knowingness, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, but whenever you see most like movies and stuff like that, someone sees the future, they only see an aspect of the future. Right. And so like almost knowing the future might be even diffi- more difficult than not knowing in the case that, you know, you know, then it comes down to some, some character issues. It's like, well, I already know the future, so I'm just going to sit back and, and let it happen. Mm, or right. it could be like, Oh, okay, that's possible. But what if I did these things and it made it even more, you know? Well, I think that's what's so crazy about the thought experiment is you run into all of these, all of these issues that I think sort of center around the idea of time. Because if you did know the future, mm-hmm. and so your position would then be, well, I'm just going to sit back and let it happen. Mm-hmm. But I think there's something about being a human that we don't do well when we just sit back and let things happen. Mm-hmm. Even things that would be relatively considered good don't seem so good anymore yeah. <clears throat> when you're not actively engaging them. I think this is one of the maybe one of the arguments for the, the fundamental nature of relationship in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're just, if you're not participating, mm. if you're not being active, if you're not creating, well, you're not, you're certainly not happy. I don't think, Yeah. you know, even, even if the result of that is a million dollars or, or, you know, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of Dr. Evil. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Evil, it's the year 2000. That's not that much money. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, You know. um, So you're thinking about it on like a single dimension. Like I'm thinking about Back to the Future 2 where Mm -hmm. Biff gets a hold of the the sports Mm -hmm. uh, charts for the last... Mm-hmm. or the, the upcoming two decades, right? And it yeah. makes him wildly rich and famous. And But that's obviously, you know, that, that thought experiment in that movie as it plays out does not turn out to be a good thing. Mm-hmm. So in that case, knowing the future, well, <clears throat> if you knew things that would allow you to become rich, yeah. that could be good. Mm-hmm. But if you know things that will be certain to make you rich, then your position, your relation toward those things changes such that I think it's likely that that doesn't end up being a good thing. I almost think in every case, it's better not to know the future. I I don't think, I don't think you can make a case that knowing the future would be of some, of some benefit. I think we, we would just screw it up, whatever it might be. <clears throat> Even though like yeah. you might accomplish like being rich, 
but you, you'd be a complete asshole. And some people are like, well, you know, whatever. It's like, I'm rich. That's what I wanted to accomplish. And it's sort of like, that's, but it seems so one dimensional and hollow, you know, it's like, cause like if making money is of no use to you and there's no drive, it's like, <clears throat> I mean, we all know that having money is not the, is not going to solve your problems and it's not going to give you a rich life, you know? Mm-hmm. In fact, in many cases, it just lends itself to just squandering and and slothfulness. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, it it maybe is starting to make the argument that what makes something good is what Discovery. you do with it, mm-hmm. how you relate to it. Yeah, and maybe in order for us to reliably relate to something in a way that makes that thing good money, for example, Mm -hmm. as opposed to bad, because we all know that money can ruin lives. I think we all know that. I mean, maybe (laughs) I take that for granted, but, um, you know, I think the statistics show fairly well that most people, the vast majority of people who win the lottery, for example, are in a much worse situation, you know, within a year or two. Mm than before they won the lottery. Money can ruin lives. Yeah. Um, I think it's one of the main causes for divorce is money. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's like, if not the top two, but I, if, I, if, I, if I remember correctly, so. But money can also be really, can be really good. Mm-hmm. It can absolutely transform your life or the lives of others, communities, families, for the better. Mm-hmm. And so the distinction isn't the money. It's, it's the, it's you. Yeah. It's your relationship. You ha- it's your relationship to it. And maybe the necessary position toward all things such that they are good or become good mm-hmm. is one in which you have a healthy tension between knowing and not knowing mm-hmm. because that puts you in a position of, gratitude thanksgiving yeah you receive something that you hope for so when you get it you kind of can't take all of the credit for it Mm -hmm. and so you must sort of well you you must value it you must value it as something that you're caring for well it's also it shapes you too because in the in the acquiring of something whether it be acquiring a wife (laughs) or kids Mm -hmm. or money or whatever it might be there's something in the process that shapes you also. And I think that's like one of the most valuable aspects. If you, if you skip ahead and don't, and don't, uh, acquire the lessons, then it seems to almost rule you. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think of like, you think of so many movie stars or young kids that, uh, end up with great wealth, you know, or they hit big in the music industry. It's like, the money almost kills them. The stereotypical and, story is they fall mm-hmm. apart. Yeah. You know, it's Britney Spears shaving her head mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. Bieber doing whatever he, crazy things he's done. You know, right. It's like, or even a poltergeist girl, you know, it's like Macaulay Culkin. Macaulay Culkin. Yeah, it's, just, it's, it's almost like you, you to find somebody who defies that stereotype is nearly impossible, but there are some, but it's just like, so is the principle something like if you, if you receive something and you don't know what it is, mm-hmm. then you won't know how to put it to use. And mm-hmm. so most likely you will use it incorrectly. Mm-hmm. And 
if that thing is of great power, fame and money are of great power Mm -hmm. and you use them incorrectly, they're likely to be very destructive. Yeah. And so (laughs) you really want, you, you need to know how to use it before you wield it and Mm -hmm. to know how to use it. You have to, it's like, this is back to the idea of time. You have to get to know it. You have to learn it. You Mm -hmm. have to step into it. Yeah. You don't get to just do that instantaneously. It's like, you need the training wheels, you know, before you are able to ride on your own. And then it's like, you can ride in your neighborhood and then you can ride in the surrounding neighborhoods. And then at some point you can ride wherever you want to, you know, I kind of remember that as a kid, you know, okay. You can ride around the block. That was a big deal, you know, and there's something that you learn. Okay. There's an alley right there. I need to look, look and make sure nobody's coming out of the alley, you know? And then when I could go off of my block, it was sort of like when I crossed the street, it's like, Oh, okay. There's more likely a car is coming, you know? And so like the, the, the almost <clears throat> like the risk increases as, as that, as your, as your authority or your, your scope grows bigger. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like one shop is different from running eight shops and, um, you know, having one kid versus five kids. If you just throw like, (laughs) I feel so sorry where people have like quadruplets or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's like your learning curve goes up like 10 times, you know? Right. But by the time your fifth kid comes around you're like, okay, we kind of got a grasp. This kid is different. We're going to learn new things, but generally speaking, kind of have a, a grasp on this. Right. So, yeah, so I don't think I don't think I would want to know the future Mm-mm. because I think it would destroy what it means to be human. And if you're not human, then what are you? You're, you're either dead or you're a god, basically. Mm-hmm. If you know the future, to be inside of time, to exist inside of time, mm-hmm. and to know the future would result in like the most excruciatingly boring life of all time. Well, it's also the idea of like, like I kind of know the future, you know, and yet I don't. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain amount that as you are, are living life, you're seeing patterns and possibilities and you're able to extrapolate those possibilities out and maybe discard some and give more, some more weight. And so you're able to start to project into the future you know, your future self or, or marriage or kids or business, you know, maybe it's six months, maybe it's three years or whatever it might be. So you kind of start to project this image into the future. And so you're almost, as you're moving into the future, you're, you're using that as sort of like a reference point and measuring it against that. And if something's not, not measuring up, it's like either change your image of the future or you change something about the present to match the future. So it's like, so there's something really healthy about kind of in the same thread of like knowing the future, but more the potential of the future right? to know that so that you also are measuring whatever the present is against it. And so something has to change. It's either your projection of the future that needs to change or something in the present that needs to change in accordance to what you're projecting out into the future. Well, And meaning is only generated through the alignment of those two things. Mm. Your your vision for the future Mm -hmm. and your movement toward that or your alignment with the present, aligning the present with the the future as that comes into alignment, that generates meaning. Mm. 
you know, in a very simple way, if you feel like your life doesn't mean anything, I mean, Jordan Peterson puts it very simply, go clean your room. It's yeah. like you set a goal and you do something to move yourself toward that goal that generates meaning. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's damn necessary. Yeah. If you don't have a sense of meaning in your life, everything is terrible. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how much power you have. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, if you were to know the future and it took almost, but in that case, it would take no effort to align yourself with it. Mm-hmm. There would be no generation of meaning. You would live a meaningless life. Oh, you come back to kind of our, one of our discussions we had last year, which is one of our biggest, most listened to podcasts is uh, we talked about free will and determinism. Mm-hmm. Brett Weinstein and uh, Sam Harris had a really excellent discussion on it. But in that sense, it's like you would almost start to take a deterministic viewpoint of like, okay, well, this is going to happen. So it's going to, it's, it must happen. It's determined that way. Like there's nothing I can do to, for it not to happen. And so you almost take a back seat into your, uh, into your life, like sort of fate draws you into it. And there's something kind of like depressing and demoralizing of that sort of like my future is determined for me. And so when you see it into the future, basically that's what, if you're going to, if you're going to say it in those words in a very, um, uh, strict way, sort of like I saw into the future and who my future self is and what I will become, then that is so, and there's nothing really I can do about it, Mm -hmm. which I don't think you can say that. It's like really what you're saying is like, if you saw into the future, I think the only thing you could truly say without taking a completely deterministic view on the world is I looked into the future and I saw my potential self and maybe in the trajectory that I'm on right now that I don't know how I got there, but that is a potential, but not a determined, a determined future. Hmm. Well, I think for the same reason that the idea that we live in a deterministic world is so soul crushing. Mm Mm-hmm is the same reason why knowing the future would steal what it means to be human. Mm. Like whatever it is that means to be human or to have a soul, which is, I think tightly coupled to the sense of meaning would be gone. So what, what would you be? What would be left? And it reminds me, who was it? Is it Beekner or, Dostoevsky, one of the two, said something like, if, if mankind essentially reached some sort of utopia where he had nothing to do but eat and drink and busy himself oh, with the yeah. propagation of the species, uh-huh. the first thing he would do is basically break something just so you, he could see what happened. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't think that, you know, if... <laughs> If I could say to you, here's exactly where you're going to be in 10 years, Mm -hmm. I think you would absolutely do everything in your power to fuck that up. Yeah. Because it would just be so goddamn boring. 
to have, to know exactly what was going to happen. And you have, I think another like fundamental aspect of being a conscious human being is you are a creative generative force. Mm -hmm. You have the power to create and shape the future. That's a superpower. And if, if I tell you exactly what's going to happen, then I take your superpower away from you. Mm. You're going to do everything you can to exercise your, to regain that. Mm -hmm. Even if it means you fuck up, you know, the $10 billion I tell you is in your future. You're like, I would rather have the ability to shape the future than have that. It's interesting. Okay. So let me play this a little bit out. Cause like, I can see the sort of like idea of like, like fate, like, like you, you will end up in this one place in the end of your life or at some point in your life, how you end up into that, in that place is, is, uh, has a multiple of roads to it. I mean, it kind of takes the same sort of route of, uh, you know, like I'm Michael Vaklov. I've got, I'm six, three, uh, 175. Uh, I've got married, I have kids. As you get older, your, your potential starts to narrow more and more and more because you start to start taking things off the table. Like I will not be an NBA star. Uh, uh, for me to be a millionaire at 20, that's gone too. You know, (laughs) you know, it's like, so there's a certain amount of like, narrowing of scope as far as what is possible. Like when you're a child, you're like, I'm going to be Superman or something like that. It's like, (laughs) it's like, there's like this, this like limitless possibility. But as you grow older, it's like that, those possibilities start to kind of narrow a little bit. Well, I, I think the childish possibilities narrow. Mm-hmm. But there's another set of possibilities that open okay. and expand. Because as you <clears throat> as you reduce the possibilities of doing things that only the young can do, mm-hmm. such as become an NBA star, <laughs> you're also moving forward in life and gaining wisdom, mm-hmm. whatever that ineffable quality is. Mm-hmm. And so you may not have the power to be Michael Jordan, but you have the power to change hearts and minds simply with your presence mm-hmm. with a few words yeah. in a way that no young person ever could. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think even in that, I mean, yeah, there's, there's a, well, even, I mean, yeah, I would say just like that, would, that could be a part of a, of a younger person's, possibilities or our future, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. but there is something that as you get older, you know, you hit a certain age, you can't have kids anymore, you know, or you'll never experience, uh, if you do have kids in like in your seventies, <laughs> you know, it's like, there's a good chance that you won't experience their, their weddings and their, right. and their, in your grandkids and stuff like that. I don't know how I got off on this, but, (laughs) (laughs) but it does seem like, you know, I I think I too would not want to, to know my future. Yeah. I think there would be, there's too many, I see too many opportunities for, 
to be either me to assume how I got to that space, you know, or got to that place. Mm -hmm. Like, again, I'm assuming that you're showing a picture of like 20 years in the future or something like that. It's like, you don't know how you got there. Yes. And that would render the picture meaningless. Exactly. Yeah. And if you imagine, reminds me of this song by the um, singer songwriter, David Wilcox, I forget what it's called. Love will set the stage or something like that. Mm -hmm. He makes the point in the lyrics that if you were to write a play and the purpose of your play was to make the point that love wins out in the end, Mm -hmm. would the writer of the play not set the stage at some point. So it looked like the hero was surely going to lose Mm -hmm. so that everyone watching is on the edge of their seat, wondering will love win Mm -hmm. so that when love does win, it means something. It's like, if you just take the snapshot of the end of a movie where the heroes, the characters you care about are arm in arm smiling. Mm -hmm. If you just see that, it means nothing. But if you watch the whole movie and you see that Mm -hmm. it means everything, it's very deep. Cause at some, at some point the potential for that not to work out is always there. It has been there. So the fact that the, the fact that it worked out Mm -hmm. is the point it worked out, which means that there was a time where that wasn't a thing. Mm -hmm. So, Again, I think this comes back to what it means to be human. I mean, if you were to imagine, let's say, the playing out of the story of humanity till its end, mm-hmm. and you believe that in the end, love wins, mm-hmm. you know, you're, everyone's in heaven or whatever. Mm-hmm. You can't fast forward to that. Otherwise, it wouldn't mean anything. Yeah. There'd be no context for it to mean anything. and And this is what it is to be a conscious human being inside of time. And it's something we all know too. I mean, it's something that our mythologies, our stories, our religions all tell us this. And, you know, again, I I think of like, I've been thinking a lot about like, uh, uh, the fourth turning talks about time as far as like, you know, chaos and then cyclical and then, uh, sort of linear time. So the idea of chaos is sort of like time has, <clears throat> has, doesn't have a lot of meaning to it. It's just, uh, uh, you're at sort of at the hands of the gods and you may or may not die, but it's not in your, it's not in your, uh, it's not in your ability to choose. And then you kind of have a cyclical time where you start seeing seasons of things and, and the gods have some control, but not all control. And then you have linear time, which there's some sort of like projection into the future of something good. And you see like a lot of the monotheistic religions kind of like <clears throat> take on more of that linear aspect. Um, but I mean, again, I think the, the linear includes the cyclical and the chaos part of it. So when I think of like, you know, if you'd only see the end and not the, not the process of it. You miss the cyclical aspects as well as the chaos. You know, um, you just see the end point of where all these things kind of culminate. Uh, 
And, and when, the reason why I bring that up is because it's like, you know, even, even when the story ends, you always know that couple will go through another cycle of some sort of confrontation or, or hardship that they have to go through that almost starts that cycle over that you just saw completed at the end. Hmm. But there's some sort of idea that at the end of their lives, they're sitting on the porch and they die together <laughs> in rocking chairs. Okay. That helped me understand what you're saying. Okay. Because when you watch, you read a story, you watch a movie, mm-hmm. like, and it ends well, let's say. Yeah. That's really good. You like that mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. But you also leave with this sense of like, that's not real life mm-hmm. because real life keeps going. Yeah. Real life. You solve a problem and another one arises. You work out an argument with your significant another. You're happy until the next one arises. Mm-hmm. It's very, there's something cyclical about it. Yeah. But in the end, all of those cycles are linear toward a point. Yeah. And that, that point is death. Mm-hmm. That point is, well, it's the end. It's, it's the point at which you can finally tell the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the point where you're outside of time. Mm-hmm. That's the point where, which I think in the Christian religion, you would say that's heaven. Mm-hmm. We can tell the story now. And that's when you're judged in that sense. So it's like, you know, even if you're right, this is, it's the only time you really can judge. Yeah. Cause until that, until that point you, there's nothing but opportunity to, change or to Mm -hmm. uh, be different, you know? So you might spend the first 50 of your years like being a complete ass, but those last 10 years are, you, you definitely changed and was a different person. Yeah. So do you judge somebody by the 50 years that they were an ass or the 10 years that towards their end of their life that they had changed and become something different? Well, when you finally tell the story, I think you judge them by that. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But this is also, it occurs to me that it all, <clears throat> it always seemed like the idea of heaven always seemed so dull and boring <laughs> to me as a kid. It's like, mm-hmm. so we're going to get there. We're going to be there for eternity. Yeah. What are we going to do? <laughs> what are we going to do? Because <laughs> uh, you, I don't think that our minds as conscious humans on a timeline, we don't know what to do with the idea of no time. It's like, what are you asleep? Are you strung out? You know, it's like, these are the only way times in our experience where time doesn't seem to flow. Um, so you don't know what to do with it. Oh, see for me, I totally know what to do with it. Yeah. Well, cause like I, I, if I, if I could imagine like heaven or something like that, it's like, it's not that you know everything, but you have more than enough time to learn. That's my idea of heaven. <laughs> so like I always, I always love the idea of elves, in this sense, like they live like long, long lives, you know? And so you could spend a hundred years learning how to chop down a tree. Yeah. But you're not dealing sword, but there's no such, there's no such concept as a year or a hundred years. Well, that's what I mean. In eternity. It doesn't matter. Like they're also not thinking about like, Oh, well I must spend the first hundred years. Like there's no definitive end of their lives. 
they just go off into the West. Like in the <laughs> <laughs> right. But okay. So, if, like so if there's the no concept, if you're in infinity mm-hmm. and there's no concept of time, which means there's no concept of time, there's no meaningful unit of time in infinity because you can't measure infinity. So that means like, if you say my heaven is constantly learning, mm-hmm. So you're basically outside of time. It's not like you're sort of wandering around the forest and like learning how to cut down a tree. It's more like you're like plugged into the matrix in that first moment they stick it in Neo's head and it's like, it's like, ah! it's just like, <laughs> so that's it. It's like uh, that for eternity. Yeah. At some point your consciousness is like, can we take a break or maybe like, adjust the setting a little bit or like uh-huh. you want variation. I mean, this yeah. is back to the idea of like, we want the unexpected. So, and there's no concept of the unexpected when you can't uh, measure time. Have you ever seen the good place? Yeah. A couple of episodes. Okay. Absolutely fascinating. I, again, we're talking about something we, we have no clue about, but it's just, I love pontificating about this. Uh, I love how that end ends it's sort of like you go to the good place and you kind of are able to the, sort of accomplish whatever it is that you're to accomplish. And at some point you get to choose to move on. And like, like I've, you, you sort of feel fulfilled and then you kind of go to the beyond. It's almost like, it's almost kind of more at that point kind of emerges with a Buddhist perspective of sort of like becoming one with the other, you know? And I don't know, there was something like kind of interesting about that. That was like each person kind of would hit the stage in their life. where like, no, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm done. And I feel good about this, but move on into what? Exactly. But I think that's the part is like nothingness. And that's the other thing is like humans can't imagine nothingness. <laughs> totally. It's like, well, it's I've, almost like annihilation of the <laughs> self and like you become I, I I understood the way that they portrayed it. it was more of the Buddhist sort of like you become a part of the one. So there's really no <laughs> distinction between you and the other. It's reincorporation into the Ouroboros. The Ouroboros, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, insert reference to <laughs> history and origin of consciousness by Eric Neumann. <laughs> um, insert reference. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I love how you use the official verse voice for that. Like insert reference. Uh, did I put on my radio voice? <laughs> yeah. Oh, what was I going to say? Time. Oh, totally lost. Your Boris. Uh, you, oh, you, move on into what? To what? Oh, I was going to say, so, so my, um, I've just been loving lately picking my youngest daughter up from school and like the 15 minutes we have in the car ride home, like, for some reason she's 10 and where she is in life, like her brain is just, <laughs> it's firing on all cylinders yeah. and I love it. And like she gets in the car, ask her how she's doing, how her day was <clears throat> lately. I've been asking her to rate her day on a scale of one, two, and then I change the scale every day. <laughs> she really likes that. It's like one to 35. And the next day I'm like one to 400. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so we have these conversations and like three days in a row, she wanted to talk about what you would see if you were blind. Hmm. And this is, it's like, try to have this conversation with a child. <laughs> it's impossible. Uh-huh. And so fun. Yeah. Cause like, what would, what would you see if you were blind? Well, you wouldn't see anything. 
what does that look like? Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't, you can't see, so there's no concept of look. Mm-hmm. It's like back to the idea of all language is metaphorical of an embodied experience. Yeah. And so once you understand sight, you can only describe sight based upon understanding what seeing is. And if you can't see, then you can't describe it. Or would seeing just mean something different to you? It would. I think so. A yeah. person who's blind, I think it does mean something different to them. Mm-hmm. So her question to me is like, well, do you just see black? Well, no, you don't see anything. It's like me. I try to tell her, uh, it's like, what does your toe see? <laughs> you know, uh, it doesn't see black. Yeah. doesn't see white. doesn't see anything. It's the same concept of when you move on into the beyond. Mm-hmm. It's like, what is that? We don't have any way to talk about it. Yeah, conceptualize it. Or conceptualize it because it's outside of our embodied experience. And so, one, we don't have language for it. We have no way to create language for it, mm-hmm. which is why it remains in the symbolic. It remains unarticulable. Mm. And that exists, which is maybe part of the argument for (laughs) concepts such as God, concepts of religion, Mm -hmm. all of these things which are ultimately placeholders for things that we know exist, but we have no clue how to deal with them. Mm. Well, even just going back to, man, now I'm wanting a... us to get some, a blind person on this podcast now. <laughs> well, I, I've, I've had a really fascination with like blindness, like what what that would be like, you know. As far as like even like seeing, like what, like because like you could also imagine that seeing you would still have like a layout of your house in your head somewhere. Like it takes me five steps to get from here to there, and then. You, you, you have to have some sort of conceptual like layout of how you get around and what is your, what is on your surroundings and you know, whether it be through sounds or feel or, <clears throat> but I mean, I just, just again, I'm speaking with such, such limited experience here, but like the little experiments I've done with that is just sort of like, but again, I can see, so that's a little bit different, but I could just imagine that you start kind of, you start to understand where all the walls are in your house. You know, your house so well, like the back of your hand, there has to be some sort of like perceptual sort of like seeing too, you know? Yeah. Well, I think our sense of orientation in the world comes Mm -hmm. from much more than our sight. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of a, as seeing people, (laughs) We tend to think that we orient ourselves with sight, mm-hmm. that's but th- that's sort of a left brain kind of mm. idea yeah, yeah. and it's wrong. It's like you, <clears throat> you just, you just don't mm-hmm. partly, but not fully, not mm-hmm. even primarily like your sense of hearing your sense of, um, temperature, yeah. your proprioception, your understanding of where your limbs are in a space, your ability to feel for things, mm-hmm. these all orient you in, in space. Yeah. And clearly you can get along just fine without seeing plenty of people do, mm-hmm. you know, maybe even better than you do in a lot of circumstances. Yeah. 
Did you ever see that movie? Uh, it's called Don't Breathe. I don't think so. It's a horror film. Oh, probably not then. <laughs> <laughs> it's wild. The ending is absolutely wild. But the premise is this group of kids break into this old man's house because they've learned that he uh, won a, a lawsuit over the wrongful death of his daughter in a drunk driving accident. Mm-hmm. And he's apparently got the cash hidden in his house, you know, several hundred thousand dollars or something. So they're going to break in and steal it. And they think it's going to be easy because he's blind. Mm. And they break in, but he's this older guy and he's like totally jacked <laughs> and he completely kicks all of their asses because they're in his turf and yeah, he's blind, but he knows exactly how to get around, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, and all he has to do is turn the lights out and he has the upper hand. Oh yeah. That's cool. I yeah. like that. <laughs> I think there's something about that. It's like, depriving ourselves of certain senses in order to kind of give us a different perspective or outlook on the world around us. You know, it's like, I think as, as seeing people, like we really depend so much on, I need to see it to believe it. And I think there's something about that. Just that statement is almost like, like pretty naive. I think, it's like, well, just because you see something doesn't mean that how you interpret it or your relationship to it is right or good. It might t- tell you the positionality of something, but hmm. it's really, it really is about like, if you have a loved one, it's like, it's not necessarily that like you see them and you see them smile, but there's something about your relationship to them. And sometimes seeing you miss some of the nuances that maybe you would find if you didn't see or smell or whatever it might be. Well, it reminds me of uh, your wife's comment about losing her taste and smell during COVID Mm -hmm. and her awareness of how important those senses are to keeping you safe. Oh yeah. yeah. Cause you might be able to look at a a food item Mm -hmm. and say, that looks good. Oh God. You know, she opened a bag of kale And I was like, I was probably 10 or 20 feet away from her. (laughs) And I was like, what the hell is that smell? I mean, uh, in my head. Yeah. And she was just like making her salad, just about to put dressing in. I was like, I walked over there. I was like, don't eat that. Oh my God, babe, (laughs) do not eat that. She's like, what? She's Mm -hmm. like, it it smelled like death, man. I was like, (laughs) it's amazing to me how bad Mm -hmm. greens can smell. In just a few days. Oh, especially kale. I don't know yeah. what it is about kale. Kale and arugula. Uh-huh. Arugula is really bad. Is it? I don't know. <laughs> um, but I think that that saying, I need to see it to believe it, mm-hmm. isn't exactly about sight. It's more about, I need, I need firsthand experience mm-hmm. through my senses. Mm-hmm. Which reminds me of this um, argument or, or maybe sort of like formulation for belief that someone put forth, maybe Brett Weinstein, that it's like, well, how do you know if something's true? If you see it, you can probably believe it's true. Mm-hmm. But if you see it and feel it, you can be pretty sure it's true. If you see it and feel it and hear it, you can be even more sure. Mm-hmm. And the ultimate way to be sure It's like, if you can experience it through multiple senses 
And then you can interact with another person who's also experiencing it through multiple senses. And you and I can share headspace, <laughs> space, <laughs> share headspace through language yeah. to express to one another that we're both experiencing this multi-sensory validation. Mm-hmm. Then like, that's the ultimate test of, yes, mm-hmm. this is real. Yeah. This is true. It's happening. Uh, which is so, I mean, it's like, but uh, sorry, uh, this kind of takes me into a different, different space though with, you know, when the world around you, like you see something that you think is true, but the world around you is telling you that's not true. The, the, kind of the idea behind like that's gaslighting. gaslighting. Yeah. And you can be like, no guys, like what, what are we doing here? This, I don't, I don't see what you're seeing. It doesn't make any sense. And then you find somebody again, it's funny because there's all these like, uh, examples of this where it's both affirming and also disaffirming in that, you know, people get into echo chambers and they only hear the things that they want to hear. It's like, how do you, how do you find out what is true? And I think that's so difficult, especially right now is so much, you know, there's so much information thrown at us and, uh, you know, even a lot of our authorities and mainstream media in particular is like, are trying to tell us what is true, but they're becoming more and more unreliable. And so how do you determine like what is true? Like I saw this report, I heard this, how it was interpreted and, but, but they're seeing a different, a different truth that is not even would even be considered truth. It's a, it's a manipulation of truth Hmm. to some sort to, to serve some sort of agenda. And so like, you know, I think that's, that part of it is, is like, like what, what, what's your agenda? Are you wanting to know what is true? Are you wanting to propagate some sort of ideology or your agenda? Like you want everybody to vote Democrat or you want everybody to vote Republican. So you, you orient your truth to serve those purposes rather than orient those things to serve truth. And it's, it's not that like, it's like, we can all have, we can all want to achieve a similar goal, but have different ways towards it. And that's, and that's fine. But the thing is in that instance is you're, you're still orienting yourself towards truth and not your ideology or your, um, or your echo chamber. It's like, it's something outside of yourself that you're saying, I want, I want us to achieve this. And here is how I think it would be best to achieve that. I don't know. Maybe I took us off. No, 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 <laughs> not at all. Not at all. <laughs> I just got a tickle in my throat. Mm-hmm. Well, so, so back to the formulation of mm-hmm. how do you know if something's true? Yeah. It's like the base level test is, can I experience it with my senses? The, the validation is, can I communicate with someone else who's feeling it with their senses? Mm-hmm. So what does it mean to live in a world where the vastness of what we are being told Mm -hmm. is separated from our senses. Mm -hmm. You know, you read things online. It's like almost all of our input is coming from online. Mm -hmm. 
none of your senses are engaged in this. Mm-hmm. So how do you know if something's true? It's like we're, we're all disoriented. And it makes me think about like why we care that politicians visit places. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, the most recent example of this is Kamala Harris is in charge of the border crisis and she hasn't been to the border. And, and it's like, why would we care? She can get the information she needs, right? Mm. Why do we care that she goes to the border? Yeah. Same thing was said about George Bush and uh, Katrina. Yeah. You know, he didn't visit for like two weeks or something like mm-hmm. that. And we all, we all care. It's like, he hasn't visited. It's like, well, why would we care? And I think it, it's because it actually does matter hmm. to go experience something with your senses, with your embodied senses. Hmm. It's like, it's one thing to read about Katrina or the border crisis to consume all the information available. Yeah. It's another thing to go there, hmm. to smell it, to see it, to feel it, to sense the air. There's, there is the most important information is not the data that we can transport around on the internet. Yeah. It's the, it's something more like the embodied experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the essence of it. Mm-hmm. It's like you can feel it's one of these things it's hard, so hard to articulate. It's like you can feel a vibe. You can walk into a room and feel something going on. So it's important to us that people who are in charge of things mm. are present where the things are. I mean, it's the whole argument about the ivory tower. It's like people in academia only sit in their offices and teach in classes and they don't actually are, are in the field like a business you know, it's teaching business school, but if you've never actually run a business, it's like, what, what actual experience do you have of, <laughs> yeah, of experience business? matters, experience matters. Yeah. So if we're living in a world where so much of our formulation of the truth is coming through disembodied, disembodied download, essentially, mm-hmm. how could you know what was true? It becomes a religious matter. Yeah. It becomes simply, what do you believe? Mm-hmm. Ideologies. That's, I think that's why it's still powerful is because like so many of us don't go out into the world and experience things firsthand for ourselves. You know, it's like, like for, uh, again, just, I think of like you and I, like we have Republican and Democrat friends and, and across the board of all kinds of different, it's like, they're really not that bad. <laughs> You know, it's like, but sometimes when I hear, uh, you know, my friends are from different parties, it's like, it's like they portray the other as sort of like horrible people, you Mm -hmm. know, it's like, because you can do that. Like you can, you can weave that narrative Mm -hmm. based upon all the available data points. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean there's not shitty people. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. But, but it also doesn't mean that you could, you could certainly run into that person not knowing all of that stuff mm-hmm. at a bar and just end up having a phenomenal night, mm-hmm. which means that you're more alike than you are not alike. Mm-hmm. The embodied experience is always different than the abstracted one. Yeah. And our lives are filled with the abstractions. Well, especially if you narrow somebody into like one sort of, um, aspect you know if it's a republican or something like that you narrow them into that category and it's like well they're also a husband or a wife or 
um, they run a business or they work in tech. It's like, but you're not allowed to make the intersectional argument about Republicans. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and it's just like, it's, it's just <laughs> so good. <laughs> but I think that's the part. Intersectionality like, only applies to Democrats. Democrats yeah. <laughs> oh, that, I, oh, wow. Actually that's, you, you kind of, you did actually like hit the nail on the head on that one, which is interesting. Cause like, yeah, there's a lot of talk about like you can only belong to a certain political group if you sit if you fit in these categories. You know, it's like like even if you're gay, you can't be a Republican. You know, like that's kind of the the incompatible incompatible. Yeah, <laughs> right. which is which is which is like I, I yeah I don't I don't understand that. It's like mm-hmm. okay, that's a whole other topic. But can you be a straight Democrat? Yes. Okay. I guess that's the point is you can be anything in a Democrat Mm -hmm. except a Republican. Yeah. But you can't be many things and be a Republican. How did the Democrats get the upper hand on all of that? Like, that's a really good question. That's, that's super fascinating. Like they own all the things. Uh huh. Well, it's almost maybe like even political and, uh, uh, what do you call it? Like media. Um, oh shoot. Uh, like messaging, you know, it's sort of like, like we accept all things and all people and Republicans don't. Hmm. <laughs> Except for we don't accept Republicans. Right. <laughs> We accept all things and all people except for the bad ones. Uh huh. Except there are no bad ones except for these bad ones. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's super interesting. And I think that's like the stigma that the the Democrats have is that somehow they are all inclusive and Republicans are not. And like the messaging has been really But it's interesting because it's like you you've kind of seen this over the last, you know, five or six years is that those Democrats that don't, that don't toe the line, they all of a sudden become Republicans and they're like, no, no, I'm not a Republican. I'm a Democrat. They're like, no, no, you're a Republican. Mm-hmm. Bye. Cause there's only one category uh-huh. you can put things in if you're ousted. Yeah. Like you're, you're far right. Like I, I, mm-hmm. I can't imagine. Congratulations. You're far right. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I've just seen so many of those, uh, you know, even pretty progressive Democrats being like, no, wait, how did I find myself over here? I'm not, yeah, one, of, right. I'm not one of those. Well, I feel like all those people too, is like, they're like, at first they're like, no, 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 I'm not over here. And then I was like, wait, over here is not that bad. Yeah. Hold on. <clears throat> like I, I still don't agree with these people, but like, but they actually like seem pretty accepting. <laughs> totally. The side that was supposed to accept me booted me and uh, the side that was full of the unaccepting bad people is accepting me. What's going on with this? <laughs> That's just a story I've heard a lot. Totally, yeah, I've exactly, not yeah. experienced that personally, uh, but uh. well, I wonder if there's like that. There, there's probably definitely a, um, a shift in that over time. Like, you know, certain political parties get more uh, rigid and some become more relaxed and then they kind of trade places. It's almost like, it's almost like the Republicans of the eighties were more rigid and they've become more relaxed and the Democrats who used to be more relaxed are now more rigid. Yeah. (laughs) Are we dealing with cyclical time? Yes. Cyclical time. (laughs) 
in the in the end, in linear time, <laughs> there are no Democrats, there are no Republicans. No. <laughs> there is only the Matrix. The Matrix. <laughs> I love it. Constant learning at an infinite rate. <laughs> oh, I want to go there. <laughs> Let's go there. <laughs> oh man. Should we tie it off with Thanksgiving? <laughs> Thanksgiving. <laughs> I don't know if I can make that point. Um, <clears throat> should well, I try? I, well, I'll, I'll throw out something you can kind of like, kind of wrap it <clears> in that. <throat> it's like in this, it's like, I think there's something that, like we need to be thankful for like those people we disagree with and we need to engage in a spirit of sort of thankfulness because like if you don't, if you don't invite those alternative perspectives or people you disagree with into your life. It's like you let you live a less fuller life, you know? And, mm-hmm. and I think that's what family is truly about. And I think that's what makes Thanksgiving great is like, here's a group mm-hmm. of people you did not choose to be around. <laughs> you were born <clears throat> into. Yeah. And like, you sort of are with them during this time. And it's like, you know, I hear a lot of horror stories of this, but that's a, it's a really good point. It's like, is it good? Is it bad? Well, it's both. Mm-hmm. You don't know, yeah. but you do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, why do you do it anyway? Cause it's worth it. Maybe yeah. it means something. It's like, you don't know. And I think we've kind of laid out the case in this conversation that not knowing is, hmm is um it's like one of the core value propositions of being a human. Yeah. Because there's always the potential for the unexpected, mm-hmm. the wild surprise, the thing that's beyond your imagination that arrives. Yeah. You show up to Thanksgiving because you have hope. And that is what creates your hope is what creates it's what creates the world around you it's what it's like it's what calls and beckons goodness into being and it doesn't always manifest Mm -hmm. but it does sometimes yeah and when it does it makes the whole play worthwhile well, it's also acknowledging and accepting that like I need to change and it's like, I need to be in places where that is challenged, you know? And I think family is one of the, one of the biggest spaces that challenge that, you know, like we, we grow up and we kind of go into our own little microcosms, you know, but we're, we're drugged back into this, uh, smaller microcosm of a family that as everyone has gone out and changed, you're kind of faced with your old self and your old relationships. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of like, it's sort of challenging. I think maybe even sometimes that's one aspect that why people are so challenged in dealing with family and because it's like who you were, who you are and who you will become is sort of all present at that, at that space. 
because like a lot of times your family knows you for who you were and hopefully also knows you for who you are. But also ideally in a family situation, they leave space for who you will become. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's a healthy family, a healthy family. I think is they know who you were, they know who you are and they have aspirations for who you will become Mm -hmm. and they can speak into your life in the, in a way that, helps you and encourages you into bringing that potential into the present, you know, Mm -hmm. however, I think many times we experience this in a negative way because sometimes people want us to be who we were and that's not who we are. And sometimes who we are right now is not who we want to stay, you know, and in healthy relationships, you kind of have all three of those things present at the same time who you were, who you are, and who you are to become holding in that sort of paradox. I think that's, I think that's a good relationship right there. Mm. Yeah. Or healthy relationship. So lately every morning when I get up, I've been spending about 15 minutes journaling, writing and something I've started doing without really trying I didn't plan to do this, but it's sort of has happened. And now I'm trying to do it is, is like setting a theme for each day. Oh, interesting. Um, yesterday the theme was calm, hmm. you know, and I don't, I don't know where that comes from. It's like, I just sit down and I'm writing and I ask myself, what is the theme for today? And this is another amazing thing about being a human is you can ask yourself questions and yourself will answer. And you're like, <laughs> where did that come from? I don't know. It's uh-huh. not as if I invented it, yeah. you know? Um, so this morning the theme was kindness. Hmm. And that was the theme for my day. And so I asked myself, well, what is, what does it mean to be kind? Something to do with kindred, mm-hmm. which is family. What does it mean to be family? So if you're kind to someone, you treat them like family. You treat them like you know them. You treat them like their outcomes matter to you. Hmm. Hmm, That's good. Which I think is the same thing that you were saying about your family knows who you were. They know who you are. And they have hope for who you're becoming. Mm Mm-hmm. Your outcome matters to them. Yeah, that's a good point. That's kindredness. Mm-hmm. And to be kind to someone is to treat them as such. As kin, yeah. And it's almost an abstraction of the embodied experience of actual family. Mm-hmm. If I'm kind to you, I'm going to treat you like my brother. Mm-hmm. This is why we call each other brother. Yeah. You're not my brother, <clears throat> but I behave toward you as if you were. Yeah. So be kind to one another (laughs) and be kind to yourself. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Love you guys. Love you. All the shorts. Cheers. (laughs) Bye everyone. (laughs) 